All right, we are looking at, this is the final installment of a series that we've been calling Churning Points. And we're looking at different Bible characters, and there was a pivotal time in their life, and we wanted to examine those pivotal times to see if we could learn from, uh, from them and what positive change is and maybe even what negative change is. And today, we're going to be looking at somebody, his name is Rehoboam. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if you know who Rehoboam is, but uh, he's Solomon's son, and this is the story of him having an opportunity to become the king of Israel and how he dealt with that. Debbie and I have been watching The Crown. I don't know if any of you have seen that uh, Netflix show. I like it. I mean, you kind of have to fast forward a couple times, but, uh, but I, I, I like it, and I just enjoy things that are about leadership, and it's interesting to watch people navigate what leadership is about and what's noble and righteous leadership and what isn't, and just to kind of get behind the scenes of royalty, and I don't know how accurate it all is, but to see what goes on in their minds and how they process what it means to have authority and how people respond to them, all those kinds of things. Well, this is a story about somebody who's looking to become a king. And we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 12, and he's asking for advice in a situation where uh, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel are coming to him, and they're kind of negotiating whether they want him to be their king. And so this is what they say, and this is how he responds. So 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 4. It says, so this is these uh, 12, tri- uh, 10 tribes saying, Your father, Solomon, put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Father was a little too harsh. Lighten up, and we'll be loyal to you, and we will actually serve you. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people? So he goes away, he says, give me three days to think about it. Goes away, asks the smart to do, goes and asks the people who were um, in Solomon's court, what do you think I should do? How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if, you, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them, serve as mentioned so many times, and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. So serve them first, then they be your servants. It's a great deal, makes sense. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. I want to hear that advice. I'm going to go to a different group of people. And this is what they say. Tell them, my father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So you think you had a hard time with Solomon? You haven't seen me yet. And uh, I'm going to rule you with an, uh, you know, with an iron hand. And uh, it's in your best interest to submit to me now so that I'm nice to you kind of idea. So how did Rehoboam seek to establish his kingship? We look at three things, and we're going to look at a contrast and draw some conclusions out of it. He did at least three things in seeking to establish his kingship over all of Israel. Uh, He, first of all, looked for people who would agree with him. He looked for agreement. In chapter uh, chapter 12, verse 8, Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders, meaning that 
uh, he had he already knew what he wanted, and he just didn't. They didn't agree with him, and so he looked for another group of people who would agree with him, people who would serve him. It's interesting that you have somebody who's looking to become a king, and you look in contrast to Solomon, who said, the one thing that I ask for is wisdom to be able to lead these people. I don't ask for riches or honor. I want wisdom. He rejects wisdom, and he just wants what, uh, he wants people to agree with what he already thought. This reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 4, where it says, people look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. That it's possible that you and I, just like King Rehoboam, aren't terribly interested in what's true or right. We just want to be agreed with. There's something I was talking to Tyler. I says, what's that, what's that phrase again that he learned in his psych classes at UBC? It's called confirmation bias. And what there's something innate inside of us that we just, we, we have an attraction to what we already know and agree with. And we hunt for it. We can see it better than new ideas. New ideas are disturbing to us. So there's something in us that just wants agreement. Well, this is what Rehoboam was like. The second thing is we see aid. Who are the people that he sought advice from were those who were serving him. He wanted to be, he wanted people around him who would help him be an aid to him, wasn't super interested in caring for others. He only wanted to be served he didn't want to serve. So you have people saying, look, we're going to serve you, but we'd like you to do something first, serve us. He goes, forget it. I'm only looking for people who serve me, and I'm going to strong arm you into doing that. It's ironic that all you had to do was serve people for a little bit, and then they would like serve you forever, and he couldn't do it. Isn't that incredible? What does that say about his heart? Finally, he was looking for authority. He said, it, for, for him, it's just all a power play. I, uh, my father scored you with whips. I'm going to scourge you with scorpions. This is a guy who collects power and control. Now, again, uh, we don't have the kind of resources that a king has. And so we look at this, we go, oh, I'd never be like that. That's horrible that somebody would talk that way. But we can actually have a similar point of view where... Um, Power and control is something that we collect to ourselves. We don't give it away very easily. If we feel threatened by somebody, we want to be able to maintain control. And if somebody bullies us, we're going to bully them back. That, that life is seen through the lens of a power struggle. And, and power is a scarce commodity, and so you have to collect as much of it as possible and not give any of it away. Now, when we look at these three things... It's, uh, it's easy to think, and, and I think rightly so, that the self-centeredness inside of Rehoboam is illogical. What ends up happening, this is a turning point. But this turning point isn't just about Rehoboam. It's the entire nation of Israel becomes divided because of his decisions. Massive turning point. Ten of the tribes leave. He's only got two left. And it's like you're, you're wanting control, you want agreement, you, you want to be, but you would actually get more power and authority by being a servant than you would by pushing with your strength and power. Like, what are you thinking? It doesn't make any sense. 
Pastor Matt was talking about this a few weeks ago, and I thought it was so insightful and so true that sinfulness doesn't make very much sense. It's kind of uh, short-term gain for long-term loss. It's, this, it's a very short-sighted view of things that can only see what makes sense right now. And here's what, here's what concerns me, is that we think that if somebody, you know, we're, we're struggling with, um, with some kind of, you know, difficulty in our life, and there seems to be this assumption, I know it is in my mind, that if somebody presents to me a good enough argument, I'll change. Or if I say to somebody else who's, who's living a, a life that's ungodly, if I can just present the Bible really, really well, then they go, oh my goodness, I didn't know that. Well, thank you so much for pointing that out. I will now live righteously forever after. Thank you so much. And I have this, I have this sense that logic is kind of what works for us. I don't think that's true at all. I think you and I make illogical decisions every day, all the time. But there's this feeling that logic somehow trumps all that. But what we see in King Rehoboam is that's not true. That it's possible to simply pursue something that doesn't make any sense, but we do it anyways. And the turning point has devastating consequences, not just personally, but for an entire nation. In contrast, so that was uh, Rehoboam's uh, way of establishing his kingship. Let's look at Jesus and his path to greatness. I don't know if you've heard, but he's king of kings and lord of lords. It's going very well for him. He is, uh, he is sovereign lord. What was his journey of establishing his authority on earth? We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. We'll just go through it briefly and then... Uh, I'm going to use the New American Standard just because it's the Bible I always read, and I, it's how I, I read this passage a lot, and so I, I like how it's, usually we do the NIV. Anyways, so that we see three things in this passage. The first is we see a contentment inside of Jesus. This is what is said in, uh, in verse 6. Jesus, by the way, the passage begins with saying, follow this example. And then Jesus is our example. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The, uh, the Greek word for that is exploited. He, was, he is equal with God, but he isn't going to exploit that. He's fine. He doesn't need to grasp or, or, or collect anything to himself. In John 5, verse 30, it says, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. In some strange way, there's, I have to be careful how I say it, but just hear me well. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Hear what I'm trying to say. There's a lack of ambition in Jesus. I'm okay. I don't need to grasp for anything. I don't need to prove anything. I don't even need to be, be right or get my way or collect around me people who I think are going to agree with me. I just want to do what my father wants me to do. I want to please him. What a, what a shocking beginning of a journey to your authority being established on earth that you're just fine not. 
Isn't that incredible? Like you, you look at people who want authority and you can kind of see it early on, you know? Like you just see that they, they like to have the mic. They, they like to be in front of people and make decisions and, and collect people to themselves. And you go, oh, okay. Well, Jesus just, he's not grasping for anything. He's content. What a fascinating beginning to an ascent to ruling the world. He has this incredible peace that he finds because he trusts in the goodness of his father. The second thing that we see is servanthood. It says in verse 7, it goes on to say, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Uh, you know, you look at the crown, trying to keep, keep that, and, you, and you, look at, uh, you look at Jesus, and he just, the, the authority that he has, he just empties himself of it. I am, I mean, you want to hear a description of a safe leader. Washes our feet. This is in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are not a means to his end of getting power. We're not a means to his end. He's not looking to get power. He's looking to serve you and I. This is just what a remarkable God. It's so ironic that servanthood is somehow a statement of his freedom. Again, it's this idea that the more you watch in your own life, the more you try to seek power and control, be in control of your life, do only what you want to do, nobody else tells you what to do, there's a bondage to that. And somebody who's a servant is actually free of having to collect self-centered authority and control. This is what we find in Jesus. And finally, humility. Verse 80, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, again, we see Jesus uh, not grasping for anything, but willing to divest himself of what looks like power for our benefit. In Matthew 10, 1, it, it, it describes, Jesus describes, his, uh, it describes Jesus' relationship with his disciples. He says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority. So you have Jesus, instead of collecting authority, he's just giving it away. He just, he's, he's, just, he's not looking at it for himself, and he's giving it away to others. You want authority? Here, I'll give you authority. I don't, I'm not collecting, I'm giving it away. Absolutely incredible. And now what's the result of this? It says that God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So you see the path to ascension for Jesus is by way of the cross. Now here's the thing. We can see how illogical Rehoboam's sinfulness was. It doesn't make any sense. You could have secured for yourself national authority and you were so self-consumed and insecure that you ended up splitting the kingdom and having far less than what you would have had if you just simply would have humbled yourself and served first. But we look at this story 
of Jesus's description of moving into authority, and it's just as illogical. It doesn't make any more sense than the sinful way did. Like, okay, you know, if you want 15 minutes of fame or 15 seconds or whatever it is, and uh, you, you, want, you want position, like, you don't do this. You, you listen to any time, uh, what does a politician do? Politician is, and it just grieves me every time they do it. Every time I hear, I go, you didn't help me right now vote for you. And what they do is they step on others, call them idiots, and then say how they're different and better and representing the people. They're always speaking on behalf of Canada or Vancouver or BC. I go, I'm not sure you're, you know, it means what you think it means. But uh, it's that, like, but it's, it's the, and what kills me is that research says that when they do that, when they, when they knock down somebody else and build up themselves, that it actually works, which is a commentary on us, of course, that you actually will get more votes if you behave that way. But if you come in humility, they'll see you as being a weak leader and you won't get the votes. <sighs> and so what we see in Jesus is just as illogical as what we see in Rehoboam. Well, now what do we do? Here's how I think the lack of logic works. So with Rehoboam, it's kind of logical for a minute and then is really dumb afterwards. And with Jesus, it doesn't look wise at the beginning, but he gets the name that is above every name. Like it's the it's opposite. You know, have you... Um, have you ever seen that thing with how you trap a monkey? I don't even know if it works. But have you seen those things where you have a, a glass jar with a narrow top and you have a rope on it that's attached to something solid? And then you, you have it, you put a, a fruit inside and then they put their hand in, you know this? And then they grab hold of it and then they can't pull it out or they can't let go because they have a thing. And, uh, and so, so for them, it's logical to keep the fruit you have. Like, you don't let go of it. That's dumb. And so sin is always doing this. Sin is always short-sighted. But it's logically short-sighted in an illogical kind of way. It's like you, you go, I, I, I can't predict what the future will hold, so I have to hold on tight to what I do have. And so I can't think about the future because I don't know what's going to happen then. But this is satisfying to me now. This is doing, this is getting me out of this moment. This is bringing me pleasure in this moment. But it's always short-sighted, which makes it long-term, doesn't make sense. What we see in the Christian way, this of course exemplified in Jesus Christ, is that it's the opposite. You do things that don't make sense right now because of great things that are going to be happening in the future. It's the opposite. Righteousness is always, has a long-term view, not a short-term view. You understand that? So you make decisions now that will have some personal cost to them for a greater good, for yourself or for others. So here's what I, I wonder if we do. Maybe not, we're not thinking about doing this. But I wonder if, we don't blend the two to avoid the uh, lack of logic. 
we start with Rehoboam and try to end up with Jesus. We'll start with short-term logic and then end up uh, hopefully doing what Jesus would want us to do in just a minute. Let me explain what I mean. The temptation is to do Jesus' list of being content and servant-hearted and humble. We want to do that, right? Everybody wants to do that. So we want to do that, but we want to do it in a minute. We need to do some other things first so we can get around to that. And what we need to do is we need to uh, do Rehoboam's list first. And once we do that, then that'll set us up because we feel good about ourselves in order to do what the, the godly things that Jesus would like to do. Let me explain this. It's a when-then scenario. When I agree with or understands God's will, then I'll be content. So I, first of all, need agreement. Like when I understand God's will, I want to do God's will, don't get me wrong. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But trust me, when it makes sense, I'm going to do it. And then I'll be content in following Jesus. But I'm not going to follow Jesus ignorantly. I'm not going to follow Jesus if it makes sense to me. And so we, we follow Rehoboam. Like God hasn't told me to throw out my mind. And so when he tells me to do things, for sure they should make sense to me, which is illogical, but you know, that's how we think. He wouldn't, he wouldn't ask me to do something that doesn't make any sense. And so I need, it needs to make sense. And then I'll have the peace and contentment to do what God wants. And so we kind of blend the two. When then? Uh, when I'm served, then I'll serve. But I have to be served first because I don't have anything. So I need to be served first. People need to care about me first. Uh, if, I, if I come to church or uh, uh, in business, I, I, need, I need stuff first. And then when my, my, then my, you know, my cup can runneth over. But I have, to, I have to be served first. And then I'll get around to serving. But it would be cruel and abusive to ask me to start serving when I haven't even been maybe adequately loved first. And so we have an entire generation right now that is looking to be loved first in the hopes that one day it will kick over into loving others. And sadly, that could never happen. We can spend a whole lifetime getting loved enough and served enough, aided enough in the hopes that one day we'll have enough that it will get us to being able to love others, serve others. So when then? Finally, when I have power, then I'll give it away. Like, give me a title first, and then I'll, I promise, you know, with a and a pinky finger, like I'll, but I'll be standing on one foot or whatever, avoids the promise. But I, but uh, you know, uh, I promise if you if you respect me and and give me a position, I'll do really, I'll I'll do well. When then, when when I get the power, I'll I'll execute it well. And Jesus comes in the form of a child, seemingly with no power, content to live his whole life as a servant. And it's actually because he divests himself 
that he then gets the name that is above every name. But I think, isn't it incredibly attractive to have a when-then kind of relationship with God? When this happens, then I, really I will. Don't get me wrong. But it's illogical to not have this upfront stuff first so that I can get to the Jesus modeling stuff later. And here's the truth. Starting with fear never leads to faith. Starting with self-centeredness never leads to other-centeredness. They're two different journeys. And yet somehow there can be a view of Christianity that has to start in, in satisfying my fears, calming my anxieties, caring for me well enough so that one day I can get around to living by faith. I think about the invitation that Jesus gives his disciples in Mark chapter 1, uh, and I, I can't fit it into our modern context. Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. The whole thing's messed up. It's, I'm going to love and serve you. I'll care for you. And then one day, if that's enough for you, we can move to part two. And his introduction is come follow me, not you. Come follow me. I'm going to have you do things that you don't agree with. Follow me, and then, and then it gets worse. Like as you follow me, now you're going to be caring about others. And then we go, well, well like when do I get to be cared about? Because I think the modern mind has a when-then uh, template that we lay over Scripture and our relationship with God. Well, when you do your part, I'll do mine. And Jesus says, no, no, do my part first and watch what I do with a humble and responsive heart. Watch what I do. So uh, fear and self-centeredness don't lead to faith and love. So what is Jesus, what is the turning point? Is we start with faith. We don't end with faith. We don't, we don't get our momentum by being self-centered, and then hopefully that that'll, when we get up to speed, faith will kick in. We start with faith. In the conclusion, it seems like as we've gone through this series, you know, I... Uh, when we go through a series, whether I'm the one developing or somebody else is, I try to just listen to the Holy Spirit and hear what God wants us to study and not kind of control it from the outset, but just see where God takes it. And I am shocked when we look at the turning points that we've been looking at these last couple months, almost without exception, it's all about surrender and abandonment. It's just so interesting to me. I didn't see that starting this series. 
And I feel so invigorated by that because so much of my life feels like I'm trying to regain enough control. I want control of my emotions. I want control of my finances. I like control of my relationships. I like control of the future. I like some kind of something that I can stand on that can launch me into being a loving person. And I'm just so overwhelmed by the pattern that we see in Scripture that it's, it, God seems to constantly be undermining all the things I'm trying to stand on. Because he's saying, I need to be in control, not you. You need to trust me. You need to surrender to me. And as you do, whether that's through being humble towards others or following my will, whatever it is, start with trust. Start with surrender and watch where that takes you. So I'm, I'm wondering um, if the Holy Spirit could uh, show us tonight where we're practicing a when and then mentality. Like where are we saying, no, I need to know some stuff first. I need to have some stuff secured first. Then, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you have a when and then, and then to see what faith would look like in that place. Then I think we have a turning point. Then we have a life that's now in the hands of God, and he can do incredible things. Remember the context of Rehoboam and the context of Jesus. This is a, uh, these are stories of significance, not security. These are stories of, of people having the potential to, uh, in Rehoboam's case, move into having great influence and authority. But it's doing it in a radically different way. And it begins with faith, not just ends with it. Matthew 16, 25 says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Can you say amen to that? Let's, uh, let's ask the Holy Spirit to show us how he wants to bring life into certain areas of our life. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you for bringing illumination to, uh, to how we approach things and to how we can find life and freedom in you. I thank you that the solution to any life problem is going to end up being about surrender and trust in you. Oh, God, what a, what a great way to start addressing our problems. I thank you that we don't end there, we start there. And so, Father, on behalf of my friends, would you please show us now where we're holding you hostage by having a when and then, that we aren't going to obey you until... Speak to us now by the power of your spirit. Show us where we're waiting and testing you to serve our agenda before we'll serve yours. And then, Father, I ask that you would show us what does, what does surrender and trust look like in that place, whether it's money or a relationship or a career or an addiction, an emotion that just seems to define us. Father, what would surrender and trust look like in that place?
Speak to us. Show us where freedom is. We're going to go into a time of worship. And I would encourage you to let this time of worship be a time of surrender. A, time of sur- a, a place of surrendering those places. Some of those places are very dear to you. They're, they're children that you love. Hard decisions to be made and you want to be loving. Those are vulnerable places. And, and let yourself entrust those places to Jesus. And see what he would do as you're content as your heart is humble, wanting to be loving. Let's stand together and worship.